Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Here in New York, Jose Rasco joining us now, HSBC Chief Investment Strategist at HSBC Private Bank Americas. Jose, great to catch up with you. Walk us through that take. Well, I think if, if you look at where we are, you know, clearly the Fed uh, had a tremendous effect on emerging markets last year, on markets and on the economy. And as a result, uh, we feel the Fed uh, is patient or on hold this year. Uh, so no question about it. And, and we think that's positive for markets. But largely priced in at this point. So mm-hmm. we're over to the fundamentals, yep. the cycle earnings. How constructive are you on those two things? Well, for us, it's those two things, right? An improving economy after Q1 is going to be weak, we think 1.6%, but we're average about two and a quarter the rest of the year. Uh, And then earnings have to improve. John and I have mentioned this a number of times. Let's do a victory lap on this again. I'm not picking the bottom of the market. Farrell was smart enough to do that. He used the gains that he got there to buy his 8,000 lift shares that have tanked. But I wasn't smart enough to do it. If I just sort of randomly late December picked a spot off of Ben Laidler's record recommendation and Jose Rasco's recommendation, John, I'm up 18%. I mean, that's that's not only a year's performance, that's a bull market. Yeah. Now what? What are the what are the optimists that have been so right? What's the now what for you? The now what is volatility. Vol's cheap. We we are concerned. Things are priced to perfection, and we think we're going to see more volatility as we head into uh, Q2 in fa- in the face of an improving economy. So uh, because we think there's going to be a lot of noise out there. So as a result, as earnings improve, more vol. And uh, we could see a bit of a retrenchment in the markets. But longer term, we still think we're going Let's dig a little bit deeper here. The catalyst for higher volatility. The U.S. data has been remarkably stable. I mean, I think it's uh, Deutsche Bank coming out with all the twos. 2% inflation, 2% GDP growth. (laughs) It has been remarkably stable. So walk me through what you think the catalyst for volatility would ultimately be. I think some of it will be earnings. On the earnings side, we're going to see some difficulty, and we've seen, but we think we'll see upward revisions to earnings, and that will be part of the adjustment we have as we go forward. The big ones we think will be political, on the trade front in particular. You do private bank, which means I need some coupon. Mm-hmm. Is coupon of any value right now? Are, are fixed income of any value? <laughs> Absolutely. Our, our, you know, high net worth individuals are still looking for that, that return, that yield. Absolutely. But they're looking for growth. And, and what we're seeing increasingly is clients are saying, you know, I'm seeing the market is up. What, what do I do? How do I Okay, get but in? is a dividend a proxy for yield? I, my, all my radar goes up when I say that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, look, we've, we've had some investors do it, but you have to be really careful, obviously, with a dividend yield strategy. So right? where do you put fixed income for hitters right now? I mean, well, is it full faith and credit? Or are you going out and finding something goofy, esoteric? Well, we're out in EM debt. We like EM debt. We like EM hard currency debt in particular. We've taken our winnings from, from uh, high yield. We still like high yield a bit, but, but, but it did really well in the first couple of months. Well, we've had an 8 9% move exactly. in 2019 already, so, Jose. It's been huge. Exactly. So we took our victory lap there, as you just mentioned, and, and we're going to sit back. And, and we still like it, but not as much, yeah. But now we're more, more focused on investment grade with this other okay. poll being emerging markets. So somebody walks in the door and they've got 15% of their portfolio on Amazon because it used to be 3%. Exactly. And it's not. What? Come on. You're telling me to sell Amazon or Apple or Microsoft or the rest of these you know, linear moonshots that are out there? You know, I, we, we think back to 2001. The biggest problem we had in the market 
the correction in the market in 2001 was people allowed their portfolio to get out of whack. They did not redistribute profits, and that was a big part of the problem. How often should people rebalance? Don't we, tell we are me looking, weekly or I'm going to throw well, you out of the studio. <laughs> not weekly, but no, we have quarterly meetings with clients, monthly meetings with clients uh, to talk about rebalancing portfolios, especially with the volatility we see increasing going forward. Yeah, what did I miss if I rebalanced Amazon just as, you know, or Microsoft? Pick Microsoft. In the last couple of months? Years, whatever. Oh, in the last Why couple of years. Why rebalance yeah. Microsoft? Well, I mean, look, hindsight is twenty twenty. If I, if I right, and that's the thing with with uh, you know, if you're yeah, gonna okay. if you're gonna do portfolio management, hindsight is twenty twenty. But uh, you know, so put it all on one stock doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think we want to mean make sure okay. that that earnings stream is solid for for investors going uh, forward. Jose, thank you so much. Can we get the three of you, you Ben Laidler and Steve Major, all in the set at the same time? Or well, I, I, even who's who's the nutcase in for David Bloom? David Bloom. Be is nice the, to Bloom. Me. Bloom <laughs> we, can't, we can't refer to a guest as a nutcase. The, you know, <laughs> the problem with Bloom is all he wants to do is talk English football. Exactly. But, but, but where, where's Bloom on foreign exchange well, right now? In the, the dollar? interesting. I'm, I'm surprised you didn't mention the interesting call with Stephen Major. You know what our call is on the 10-year, right? Yeah. 2.1%, yeah. yeah. You're still on that. <laughs> we're still on that. Where are you that. on dollar stability or even dollar strength, right? Well, that's the problem is we're not looking for dollar strength, but to Bloom's point, and, and, and uh, you know, how do you see dollar weakness in an environment where everybody else is cutting? Well, so, congratulations to your yeah. bank. You guys have been on fire. It's Thank you. Thank Jose you, Roscoe, Jose. HSBC Private Bank. Should you welcome our next guest? Well, I'm going to take the welcome here because he doesn't look too impressed with you. <laughs> Jan Hatzius, Goldman Sachs Chief Economist and Head of Global Economics and Markets Research. Jan, great to see you. Anything to say to Tom after um, that? It's great to be here and the friendly reception is always appreciated. Good. But, but seriously. But I'd like to shout out to Jeff. How do you take Jeff Curry's work and fold it into to what we're seeing? I mean, we've all lulled ourselves into pulled up the, the Business Week uh, magazine article from Mr. Hatzius. Dr. Hatzius here. Is inflation dead? Comment on that, please. I don't think inflation is dead, but obviously we're in a very different regime from where we were in the 19, 1980s and 1990s. And I think that's still a gradual adjustment of, uh, of forecasters. You know, the idea that we're going to be, uh, you know, not even with a 3.8% unemployment rate, mm -hmm. not necessarily at 2.5% plus on inflation is still something that, uh, that is taking a while to sink in. Now, beyond that sort of regime change, I think we've also seen some kind of gen more genuine downside surprises in some of the uh, inflation indicators recently. So, um, you know, I w if, you, if you'd asked me three, three mm -hmm. or six months ago, I would have said late this year, we we'd be, you know, maybe two and, a, two and a quarter percent or so for core PCE inflation. And now it looks like that's not going to happen okay. in 2020. Jan Hansius, thank you so much. Thank you, Jan. With Goldman Sachs, always. Let's bring in Dan Tanabam, shall we? PwC United States Principal and Global Sanctions Leader. Dan, let's begin with what happened yesterday. The concept of waivers for Iranian crude exports and what's going to change in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, no, Tom, I think I'm going to the wrong parties, so no one's talking about sanctions where I go. Well, or the, maybe you're going to the right parties, that, Dan. That's fair. 
The announcement shouldn't really surprise anyone because the government's been telegraphing for the last few months that they weren't going to extend the waivers. The unpredictability they've been exhibiting over the last couple of years has made people skeptical that they would follow through. But the announcement came out. They want the world to go to zero on Iranian crude. The Iranians have respectfully disagreed, as well as a number of allies that still continue to trade. And so we're going to have a bit of a standoff, potentially. How quickly can you get to zero? I mean, the waivers are due to expire on May 2nd, so next week. I I think it's very unlikely that anyone is going to zero by the end of next week. They have an Awaz oil field, an Asmari formation. They pump oil. It's put in barrels or whatever or on boats. How do you actually sanction it? I mean, is this like, you know, the Confederacy where you put boats around a harbor? Well, I mean, what they do with some of those boats, there's a whole fleet of ghost tankers that essentially are filled with oil and floating in the water as floating supply depots because they just need to store the barrels somewhere. The sanctioning will come not necessarily against the Iranians, but against companies that are found to continue to trade in Iran. So if you're a bank that had financed the legal Iranian oil trade, you could potentially be at risk after the waivers. Just because, Dan, this is so important. Fold in China into this, because one of these nations is China, and yet we're trying to be happy, touchy-feely with China right now, right? This won't help. This won't help. Thank you. I I mean, maybe we look at is this compartmentalization. They don't, right? They don't. And this is going to get roped into the broader trade debate that's been ongoing. And I know Ambassador Lighthizer's due to be on another delegation to Beijing. This will certainly be part of that agenda. But the Chinese do not compartmentalize like the U.S. are trying to on this issue. Every now and again, we hear threats of shutting down the Strait of Hormuz, which separates the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman into the Arabian Sea, which I think around about 20% of global oil flows through. We hear those threats again in the last 24 hours. How seriously should we take the prospect of Iran trying to shut down the Strait of Hormuz? I think that's an unlikely scenario that they're going to shut down that strait. There's other countries that are allies to Iran that are actually allies to the US that would all potentially have an adverse reaction to that. And all that would be harmed is be mostly the Iranians as a result of that, because other countries could come and punish them similarly. How harmed are they if we go to quote unquote zero? So, you know, the, as I understand it, oil makes up about 40% of the Iranian economy. It would be a significant harm to the government and to the country of Iran if oil goes mm-hmm. to zero. I mean, there are a number of trading partners like India, like China, that have no interest in suspending activity in trading in Iranian oil. Now, of the eight countries that got okay. waivers, Greece, Italy, and <clears throat> Taiwan have already suspended, but that leaves five countries still in the mix, and two of them have large volumes. Is there a black market? I don't want to get in trouble with PwC, but the, the you know forget about the visible market. Is there a black market where the people that desire Iranian oil, get it. I don't think it's so much a black market, but a shifting of transactions out of U.S. dollar denominated transactions and move them to the euro to attempt to keep them entirely away from U.S. jurisdiction. That's been floated for years in response to the Iran-related sanctions. The dollar is obviously a much more stable currency. That's why it's been pegged for oil. But that's always a scenario. And there's also mechanisms that the EU have set up, for example, 
to allow humanitarian trade to be processed called instex. And that is a mechanism that is technically legal, even in the eyes of the U.S., to facilitate humanitarian aid, but it goes outside the traditional banking sector. Hey, Dan, great to catch up with you. Yeah. Busy 24 hours again for you, I'm sure, and no doubt Dan will be back with us as we carry it down to the prospect of the waivers being removed and potentially an effort to send Iranian crude exports down to zero. Lindsay Piaggs joins us uh, right now with uh, Stiefel, their chief economist. Lindsay, good morning. What part of Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX matters to you? What will you look at first in the GDP report? Oh, I think everyone will be focusing on the C, the consumer, how healthy the consumer is as a one of the largest components, the largest component of the growth equation. It, it really depends on whether or not the consumer is happy and healthy out in the marketplace doing what they do best, which is spending on discretionary goods, new big screen TVs and new spring dresses. So we really need to look at how much the consumer is spending and whether or not they're able to maintain that spending trend going forward into the remaining quarter of 2019. Well, what is your work? What's your forecast on that? And I don't mean a single digit number, but but what's the what's the Lindsay Pierre vector of consumption? Well, I think the consumer is still spending. That's the good news. The glass half empty, however, is that the the consumer is spending at a noticeably reduced pace to what we saw in 2018 for a number of reasons. There were a couple of uh, very temporary but strong factors helping to prop up the consumer over the past couple of years, ramping up credit to uh, above pre-crisis levels, drawing down savings. Even that lingering wealth effect that consumers had uh, accumulated from filling up their car at lower cost fuel. Yeah, but what about the tax plan? Come on, come on. Everybody got hit over the head on taxes. Did that have a lot to do with this? Well, taxes did play a role here, but a lot of that boost for the consumer was already spent. If you look at the consumption numbers, specifically the, the discretionary spending numbers, which we look at for the retail sales figures, consumers actually went and spent well above trend at the end of 2017, But nothing had happened in terms of taxes in 2017. But consumers were more than willing to spend in anticipation of tax reform coming down the pipeline. But what we actually saw is when we turned the page into 2018, the expectations of tax reform in terms of our after-tax take-home pay were well above reality. And consumers actually had to pull back. So we overspent. We anticipated yeah. more in terms of return, and then we reverted right back to the trend pace of expenditure for the latter part of 2018, and now we're starting to see that more downward bias in 2019. Many people expected this first quarter to be soft. It's not actually as soft as I think some people would have thought it might have been going into January. Looking out and extrapolating this forward, Lindsay, is this what the rest of the year looks like, something in the low twos? Is that what you're looking for? Well, I think actually we we are going to see an annual pace below 2%. We're looking for an annual range of 15 to 1.8%. So still not terrible, right up near that 2-ish percent mark. But what we're seeing is this very clear decline in momentum from a top-line perspective. 
Remember, 4% growth in the second quarter, 3% in the third, 2% by the end of the year. We're clearly seeing this this latter okay. step down in terms of top-line growth. Lindsay, and we do expect that to continue this year. I, I believe that's a linear vector, 4, 3, 2, 1, blast-off. <laughs> right. Are you willing to predict blast-off, or are you going to get in the recession crew of 2020? Well, I do think that we see the first negative print by 2020. Now, whether or not we fall into recession, we're kind of splitting hairs there. Of course, yeah. recession is typically back-to-back quarters of negative growth. And whether or not we see that dip in the first quarter and third quarter or, or some sort of combination there, we do expect the economy to fall below zero in 2020. And whether or not, again, we maintain that consistency of negative growth or, more concerningly, we, we fall into a non accelerating growth platform in 2020, meaning GDP falls consistently below 1%. I, I do think that we see the, uh, the economy decelerate noticeably over the coming 12 to 24 months. So is that accompanied by Federal Reserve rate cuts? Is that in your base case as well, Lindsay? Yes, we do think that the Fed is going to acknowledge the, the growing level of weakness. Now, they've already acknowledged the fact that the data is not necessarily sending a clear signal to the upside or the downside. So the Fed this time around seems to be willing to make policy a, a bit more preemptively. And as they anticipate that decline in momentum mm-hmm. going into 2020, we do think they're going to set the stage for the market, giving ample time and notification that they're willing to move into a defensive policy position, and we get that first rate cut in the first quarter of 2020. Lindsay, thank you so much. Lindsay Stiefel, uh, Chief Economist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.